when I was first working on this sermon, I happened to go online to pull up the news. And as I scrolled through the headlines past the breaking news, I I got to the op-ed section where, I soon learned, the whole world was on the brink of collapse. Every headline was about democracy dying, the pervasiveness of gun violence, the America we know having disappeared forever, the collapse of the institutions and norms that hold us together as a culture, even allowing for the reality that these headlines are in part designed to get people to click and to renew their subscriptions, it was striking how hopeless and anxiety-ridden they were, and how pervasive they were. There was no counterpoint, things actually pretty okay. To refer back to what we were talking about last time, there was no sense that Jesus being Lord was doing much to fix the emergency many were feeling. Now, doesn't this undermine the good part of the good news that we laid out last week? Meredith, who, as you all know, is a big deal Instagram influencer right now, and who is furious that I am saying that on the podcast, but she, a couple weeks ago, was in the space of having to think through how to respond to this dynamic in the wake of the shootings in Uvalde, Texas. The most common questions that she was hearing from other parents weren't so much in the how do I tell my kids what happened camp, there are some great guides for that from child psychologists out there, but rather how do I help my kids understand who God is and understand the world in light of the things that are happening, things like this shooting. We say that God is great and good and powerful, but then things like this keep happening. Why? The questions that she was getting were, if I can kind of generalize out from that specific situation a bit, something along the lines of, in light of the seemingly pervasive brokenness of the world, can God really be trusted? Or, put the other way around, is the brokenness evidence that God can't be trusted? The Old Testament is full of exactly this question. In light of defeat by enemies, being enslaved by Egypt, lack of food or water in the wilderness, personal loss in the story of Job or some of the Psalms, in light of, and this is the big one in the prophets, being conquered and exiled by Babylon, can this Yahweh actually be trusted? Both N.T. Wright and Richard Hayes point out that the Old Testament has a word for this experience, this question. Maybe not the word you might expect. Shame. Psalm 71 begins, In you, Yahweh, I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Then goes on to ask God to rescue them. So that all the way down in verse 15, so that they can tell of God's salvation and righteousness. And the psalm ends promising to praise Yahweh's faithfulness. This psalm shows us that shame is not feeling bad. This is not what Brene Brown was talking about. Shame has the more particular sense of, as N.T. Wright puts it, what God's people feel when their enemies are triumphing. It is what Israel and many other people felt in Paul's day, suffering at the hands of Rome. Shame is, in other words, what one feels when one is in need of rescue and the God who promised to rescue you isn't seeming to come through. Shame comes when it doesn't seem like God is going to keep God's promises. And so the Old Testament word for what the people of God might feel as they look at the many ways the world seemed to be falling apart, as they experience the anxiety that so many feel today, as their worlds certainly don't look like they are being put right again by King Jesus, who is supposedly on the throne, the Old Testament word for that is shame. Put another way, am I a fool for believing in? 
putting my trust in this Jesus. This is the proper context for us as we turn to Romans 1. Paul has already told the Romans about the good news, that Jesus is king, that the new age when God put the world right has begun with Jesus's resurrection. And then he says in verse 15, that's why I'm eager to announce the good news to you too in Rome. And he follows that with this in verses 16 and 17. He's eager to announce the good news because I am not ashamed of the good news. It's God's power, bringing salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also equally to the Greek. This is because God's covenant justice is unveiled in it from faithfulness to faithfulness. As it says in the Bible, the just shall live by faith. The context of what shame means in the Old Testament helps us see that this isn't telling us not to feel embarrassed about believing in Jesus or something like that, although Paul would certainly agree with that too. But his point is a more important one. He is confident that he will not be put to shame in the same sense that Psalm 71 meant, that he is not a fool to put his trust in this Jesus, despite the apparent evidence to the contrary specifically the crucifixion and ongoing persecution of Christians. As a quick tangent, this is a good example of how Paul uses the Old Testament. These two verses in Romans hit on, in the very same order, the themes of Psalm 71. But in the Psalm, it's over the course of a whole 24 verses. Paul is drawing on the whole narrative logic of the Psalm, not just a verse here and there. In both cases, the progression, the logical sequence goes like this. No shame. Because I can trust God to rescue me out of my current dire situation, because I know that God is faithful. Okay, back to Romans. It's often hard to tell in English translations, but Paul regularly links ideas together with the Greek word gar, which means something like for, in the sense of because of, like I am going to the store for we are out of milk. And you can kind of hear right there why the English translations often drop the word. It sounds formal and archaic. The problem is we then sometimes can miss the logic of what Paul is saying. In my example sentence, the logic is that I am going to the store because we are out of milk. It is the out of milkness that leads logically to the going to the store. The final idea explains the first one. Paul often links several thoughts together in this way, where the final thought is the foundation for what came before, if we work our way backwards. And these verses are a good example of that. Verse 15 says, Paul is eager to announce the good news. And then verse 16 begins with Gar. Gar, I am not ashamed of the gospel. So why is Paul eager to announce the good news? Because he isn't ashamed of it. And then he goes on. Gar, it, the gospel, is God's power that brings salvation to all. Gar, God's dekaiasune, is revealed a word which you might remember if you listen to the intro backdrop pod. God's righteousness, as it's often translated, or as N.T. Wright translates it, God's covenant justice is what is revealed in the gospel. So we can work backwards to follow Paul's logic. God's covenant justice or righteousness being revealed is the reason salvation comes to all, which is the reason Paul is not ashamed, and so is eager to proclaim the good news. So if we want to understand fully what Paul is saying, we need to uncover what is this dekaiasune, this covenant justice or righteousness that is the foundation of all the rest. The way many understand the word righteousness as meaning something to do with moral perfection 
doesn't seem to make much sense of the logical progression here. But when we look at the Old Testament passages that Paul is referring to in these verses, we find another side of Dikaiosune that does, that does make sense of all the rest. We already mentioned how Psalm 71 ends with the writer looking forward to a day after Yahweh has rescued them, when they would be able to tell others of Yahweh's faithfulness, which again is the same word that Paul uses, dikaiosune in Greek. In Psalm 71, God's faithfulness leads to salvation, which means there will not be any shame. Similarly, if we look up the verse Paul quotes in Romans 1.17, what Wright translates, the just shall live by faith, that comes from Habakkuk chapter 2. And Habakkuk 2 is maybe the most important of the Old Testament references in these verses and in the surrounding chapters of Romans. Wright tells us that the original passage in Habakkuk belongs within a book full of woe and puzzlement. (laughs) The Chaldeans, the Babylonians that is, are marching against Israel. All seems lost. And so Habakkuk wants to know what is Israel's God up to in allowing it? This is once more the question of the righteousness or justice of God. The book of Habakkuk is full of the very question we started with today. What is God up to in allowing this disaster to go on without intervening? Habakkuk's response to this is that in contrast to those who look to wealth and power for rescue, the righteous live by their faithfulness, as the NRSV puts it. The righteous live, in other words, by staying faithful to Yahweh, trusting in Yahweh to keep promises. And so the rest of Habakkuk 2 is about God coming through to punish the idolatrous and the violent, to put an end to the injustice. And then Habakkuk 3 is about God bringing mercy and salvation to Israel on the other side. Okay, so what does all this background tell us? Most importantly, it tells us that Paul is very much not talking about righteousness in the sense of moral perfection. Or that believing that Jesus is God will give you that sort of righteousness too and let you go to heaven or something. That isn't what these Old Testament passages were about. And it would be bizarre for Paul to refer to them if he didn't mean to echo what they were saying. Paul knew the Old Testament too well for that. No, the foundation for why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel is not God's moral perfection. It's the same thing that is Habakkuk's foundation in expecting salvation on the other side of disaster, and Psalm 71's foundation expecting rescue from enemies, God's faithfulness. God is faithful to their promises and so can be trusted to keep them. For Paul, God is faithful to the covenants that God made with Israel, maybe particularly those he made with David and with Abraham. God had promised Abraham that all the world would be blessed through his descendants. And God had promised David that one of his descendants would establish an everlasting reign that would put the whole world right. And this is why Wright translates the word covenant justice, because Paul is saying that God's faithfulness to these covenants has been revealed in the gospel. And here we need to remember from last week, back in verses three and four, what the gospel is for Paul. The gospel is that Jesus, the Messiah, is the resurrected Lord of all the earth. And if we remember that, then this all comes together. Working backwards, God's covenant justice, God's faithfulness to the promises in the Old Testament is revealed in the gospel because, as we'll unpack in more detail later in Romans, 
Jesus is the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. And crucially, Jesus's resurrection shows that God is bringing them true. Therefore, salvation is being extended to all who believe that gospel, both Jew and Greek, just like the Old Testament said. And therefore, Paul will not be ashamed of the gospel, despite those who might say that following a crucified Messiah is something to be ashamed of, because it is in the resurrection of that Messiah that we know God is rescuing all from the enemies of God. Although, as we will see later on, those enemies are bigger and badder than just Rome itself. And so this is good news that needs to be announced everywhere, including in Rome. Jesus, the Messiah, was crucified, which would seem to put his followers to shame. But God has raised Jesus from the dead, reversing the verdict, like we said last week, and showing that he is, in fact, king. Jesus is David's descendant who will establish an eternal reign. Jesus is Abraham's descendant who will bring God's blessings to the whole earth. The promises have been kept. God's faithfulness has been revealed. And Jesus's resurrection is the key to it all. It's trendy in certain liberal and so-called deconstructing Christian spaces to question a literal resurrection. I mean, it's a bit far-fetched, isn't it? A person being raised to new life after death. Wouldn't it be easier just to see it as a metaphor? And it's a valid question. But what I've laid out is one of the reasons why Jesus being literally resurrected matters and why Paul puts that resurrection squarely at the center of his good news. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus is not a failed Messiah, but King. The resurrection is proof that God has not abandoned their promises, but has fulfilled them. The resurrection is proof that God has not rejected Israel and humanity, but has come to save them. The resurrection is proof that God has not given up on the broken creation, but has come to fix what is wrong. The resurrection is proof that we are not on our own, left in shame by a God we couldn't trust, but will in fact be rescued, will in fact be saved, will in fact be given life, both literally and metaphorically, by that God who has come near to us. The resurrection is the turning point in history because it is a place we can look to, Whenever the world seems broken beyond repair, whenever despair and shame begin to creep in, it's where we can look and know for sure that God will come through. Because when our God begins something, they are faithful to carry it through to completion. And the resurrection was that beginning. A world like ours doesn't need metaphorical answers to concrete disasters. A world like ours needs a God who keeps their promises a God who can be trusted when it's all falling apart, a God who comes near to carry us through to life. 